0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play.
1: And now for our feature presentation.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to Girl Presses Play. Hope y'all are doing well, staying safe, and of course watching lots and lots of movies. So for today's episode, I wanted to jazz things up a bit, because I was thinking and I realized we've talked about gory horror films, big budget action adventure movies, and super indie documentaries, but one film we really haven't given a full episode to is children's films, and... If you think about it, what children and young adults watch today will affect how they grow up to experience and perceive the world around them. So, in a way, one of the most important film genres out there, so it is a little absurd that we haven't talked about it yet. Which is why, for today's episode, I ended up choosing 1977's somewhat forgotten Disney film, Peach Dragon, directed by Don Chafee and apparently an uncredited Don Bluff. Interesting. And its 2016 remake, directed by David Lowry. And I think these films offer a way to look at how children's films have changed or stayed the same over the last half century or so. But I'm going to be the first to admit I love kids. And I love kids' movies. I don't know the first thing about writing or making those movies. So today, I am bringing in my friend, YA writer, Joe Mwamba, to discuss these films with me. So let's see what we learn about dragons, villains, and what family can mean in today's episode of Girl Presses Play.
1: Sing. with a wonderful motion picture. Walt Disney
2: Productions
1: Pete's Dragon.
2: I need to get back to him. He gets scared when I'm gone.
1: Is Elliot a person?
2: No. He looks like a dragon. What's a dragon? That's a dragon.
0: My guest is a producer and emerging writer in LA who graduated with an MFA from Chapman University and has worked at MTV, VH1, and UTA. He produced the YouTube series, Tell Amazing, focusing on all things TV from 2015 to 2017. His young adult pilot, The Knights Phoenix, has been a quarter finalist in the ScreenCraft TV pilot competition, as well as the Blue Cat screenplay contest. You can read that pilot on Coverfly now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome my amazing friend and amazing writer, Joe Muamba.
1: Everything she said was lies.
0: Oh, really?
1: Everything she Mister,
0: said. I want to approve this intro before you record it. <laughs>
1: Um, I don't know what she's saying. She's continuing the line. I
0: may or may not be holding this man captive.
1: This. Uh, exactly. I never approved <laughs> this. This was never given to me for me to vet. She can't and she can't prove it either. <laughs> All cannot.
0: similarities and characteristics are entirely fictional. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna ask a very lo- apparently a very loaded question for you. What did you think oh. of both films?
1: Yeah, so I had never watched either of these um, before you had asked me to come into this podcast. So it was an interesting watch of both of them. I'll start with the first one. The first one was a challenge. Um, I understand that we're in 1977. We're we're talking about Disney musical type films. And so we're going to get songs and we're going to have the songs to move along plot. For me, it felt really all... over the place. Like I wasn't like, I just felt that the film was a bit scatterbrained. It, it was almost trying to be this, like crazy kooky type thing and just came off a little bit unorganized to me personally. Mm -hmm. But look, if you're a kid watching it though, that's just fun for them, I guess. But even so, it just usually have the songs that like move the story along. Mary Poppins is of course one of the great ones where the songs are done and used to move the plot or have this explanation of why this certain thing is important, like Sound of Music does the same thing. And I felt here, it was just more of like, wasn't really moving the plot it was almost like exposition almost with like everything mm. before we move on. and it just kind of felt like it's the song slowed down the film as opposed to where when I'm watching Mary Poppins I'm like no these are not only value adds like I'm actually learning things about the characters as I'm watching as opposed to in the beginning yes we learned that Pete is an orphan who uh, is running away from these four people who are pretty much enslaving him so okay first song that does the job but then the second song afterwards is like uh my best friend pete or elliot and the dragon and it's just like we're spending three minutes of them talking about him having this dragon that i clearly already see and then the next song is i saw a dragon which is him just talking about having seen a dragon and it's like we're not moving the story forward it's more of like here's a point and i'm just gonna sing about that one point it is really it slowed down the thing for me which i think harped like hurt my enjoyment of that film the other film the newer film pete's drag uh well they're both called pete's (laughs) (laughs) dragon
0: i was about (laughs) to to say it was like did we watch a different film
1: Yeah, (laughs) the dragon of Pete. Uh, Pete's Dragon, 2015. I did feel that this one was as story-wise better, but I think a lot of that had to do with that they took down the themes. Like in the 77 version, They're trying to do a lot of things. It's not just a story about an orphan that's running away. It's about friendship. It's about family. It's about being conniving. It's about believing in things. Like there's a lot of themes there. While with the the 2015 version, they really just like brought it down to one really simple A story. There isn't really, that's kind of a B story, but not really. Like it's really one centered on one thing and they honed in on one thing, which made it a much more palatable film. I think that it accomplished a lot more in that regard however what i will say is i think that while the first film is more palatable and better and a little bit more believable i did think that the 77 one was a little bit more they took more risks they the reason i say that is i think that there was only really one or two messages you get from the 2015 version while the 77 is trying to teach you a lot like there's a lot of things going on And I kind of want to commend the 77 one a little bit more just because like, as a kid, when you're watching all this stuff, when you leave, there's a lot of things you can take from it, even if you liked it or not. As opposed to 2015, that version just felt like, okay, well, family's important, cool. You lose a family, you get another family. Like that's really (laughs) generally um, what it (laughs) is, I guess. But we'll, we'll dive more into it. But I enjoyed the 2015 one, much better than the 77, (laughs) Um, very, very like way more, but that's a caveat to, I think that the 77 took more risks.
0: I don't know if I agree or disagree with that, but I do think one thing that's really interesting and perhaps important to note about the 1977 Pete's Dragon is that they started development for it back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And from what I could tell, the reason it took so long to finally get to the screen is because the technology for actually making Pete just was not there. So it seems like the story basically stayed the same they didn't really change anything with the script or the characters or anything they just kept the story very intact and then did all the late 70s technological things because i remember watching it and i just kept on having to check oh wait this is a movie made in the late 70s because it feels mm-hmm. like like a meet me in st louis or seven brothers mm-hmm. for seven bitty, Bit bitty, sisters bitty, bitty. that almost like 50s love of the american pastoral past if that makes mm-hmm. sense um mm-hmm. yeah So I do think, like, maybe because of that, they were just like, F it, it's been 20 years, let's just leave the story as, like, weird and crazy as it is. And I do agree with you that the songs really slowed everything down in the 1977 version. That being said, Mm -hmm. I really, just from an emotional standpoint, I loved the 2016, is it 16 or 15? We're going to double check.
1: 15. 15.
0: 15? Okay. I loved the 2015 version of this because they did pare it down. And I feel like there was a lot more concentration on the relationship between Pete and his dragon.
1: Oh, I am wrong. It's 2016.
0: I apologize. (laughs) The podcast host is always right.
1: How dare I be wrong?
0: (laughs) How dare you, sir? (laughs) I say, Um, but I will personally say I was bawling my eyes out during the last, I would say like 40 minutes of this movie without spoiling too much there's just like a lot of stuff that happens that was just like a lot for me to take
1: if if people are listening to a podcast about the two pete's dragons and they're like no spoilers i'm curious why (laughs) just
0: trying to be a good podcast host sir i'm just trying not to be like oh and then when the mom dies
2: (laughs) Okay, fine. I mean, granted,
0: they're Disney movies. You can probably guess the beats of what's going to happen. Yes. But no, I did love the 2016 version for that fact that they really pared it down. And there also seemed to be a huge kind of like a little bit in both stories, I would say, this big like nature versus like modern progress sort of thing going on because I feel like in the first film that was represented with the charlatan doctor and in this film it's represented with the lumber company that the brother owns Yeah, there really seemed to be like clash of nature and like development
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and I feel like it's a little bit less clear in the 77 version because the modernity is like a doctor or a charlatan doctor whereas this it's very clear like woods good lumber company bad
1: Yes. And they did. And I give them credit because they did it very, like in a very subtle way without banging it on the head of like, you, yeah, you're right. In symbolism, they showed that, but they didn't go like, we got to save the treat. Like it, it, it was very <laughs> like well done for kids who like accept and understand like, yeah, this is good. This is bad going on with also with, oh, we think it's also bad because, you know, we're going into a dragon's home. Like it's somebody's home that we're invading. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, that, like, and that in ways were like themes that were able to go together, which you're right in the 77 in the one, no. It didn't, really, <laughs> it, just didn't. it didn't really mesh. The themes were very like separate. It, was, it did not mesh very well.
0: I also think I really liked the modern version better because I really hate when kids are trying hard to be precocious and cute. And in this film, I thought David Lowry did a really good job of respecting the fact that they're kids, so they don't know everything yet, but they are also little intelligent beings. So he wasn't trying so hard to make them look like Exceptionally smart or gifted, but he wasn't mm-hmm. also trying to make them look exceptionally cute. They were just kind of there as characters, which I really appreciated.
1: Yeah, I did think that there were a lot of real moments with the kid, or I should say, sorry, Pete, um, played by Ota Figley, who I think did a really good job, mm-hmm. not only for that age, but just for like, you know, I always think in my head, like, this is a child playing with nobody. Like, you're like, when he's mm-hmm. out there, I know that actors, you know, they always play with, like, green screen and stuff and the manager, but, like, this is a child. Like, yeah, he's emoting
0: to, like, like, a tennis ball on a yeah, stick, exactly. <laughs>
1: and for what he was tasked to do, he did a great job. And none of us, I mean, maybe along, you are an actress, so you probably could. I cannot Aww. be told, act along with a tennis ball and be, like, and be convincing. Well, also, so,
0: um, Una Lawrence, who plays the little girl that's, mm-hmm. I guess, the stepdaughter of... The forest ranger i thought oh, also was really good I'm sorry. You know, too and she also had to act against a tennis ball for a lot of it it mm-hmm. seems
1: mm-hmm. yeah and so but like uh your point i do think that there are a lot of real elements. The fact that he stayed in a forest for six years and then when he goes into the city, like how he reacts, like not only that, but like I still have in my mind when I promise is not a spoiler, but when um Grace finds him again and catches him and he just starts howling because that's what an animal does to call for help. And that scene to me was just like very, very real. Like, yes, that was very inhuman and not, and if you're just an adult watching this, you're like, oh, that's weird. But a kid gets that. They know this is how an animal calls. Calls for help and he is only responding as that would be and that became very real so they did do a really good job making it as close to real without it becoming
0: it was borderline room <laughs> the little kid in room who doesn't understand but like a shower is and pancakes are yeah
1: <laughs> which i shouldn't be think... making fun of yeah i did think that they laid that a little bit too thick a bit I Mm -hmm. I was like, I think the kids get it. Um, Like by the two thirds into the the movie when it's just like, what does this mean? And it's just like, I think kids kind of get it that he's not going to know what everything is. So I think Mm -hmm. they could have, I think they could have leaned back a little bit on it, but I get it. I understand it. It's fine. Kids have goldfish memories sometimes. So
0: we all, I mean, especially post pandemic, we're all going to have goldfish memories for the next like two decades, I would guess. So question number 2
1: uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
0: I don't know why I put so much emphasis on that. I feel like...
1: Also, sorry, just to add on, because I just thought of this too, because when you asked me what I liked about these two films, I almost also wanted to say that it's a little bit hard to compare them because one of them is being a straight musical comedy while the other one is not (laughs) at all. It's straight up trying to be a drama. Like I could... Mm -hmm. Very rarely was there the occasional laugh or there wasn't really a comic relief except for the dragon kind of.
0: I would say the cop... A little bit. The Isaiah Whitlock Jr. cop. A bit. A teensy like,
1: bit. Yeah, like he is in himself funny, but he wasn't in the film that much. But again, the film wasn't trying to be that. It was trying mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. So like, it almost feels like, I think when you talk about quality, like, yeah, of course the 2016 version is going to be better than the 1977 version, but Is that fair to compare them? Because they're both intending to do different things. That was something that came to mind, which maybe I'm trying to defend a bit, the 77 version, Mm maybe a little bit almost to the point where you just said about the 20 years thing, because I didn't know that. And now I'm like, oh, you know what? If they came up with an idea that was 20 years too late anyway, (laughs) then it wasn't, it was destined (laughs) to not be the greatest film they've ever made either. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting also that they decided to pivot this direction too.
0: Yeah, and I think when I wanted to ask about how like the second film has a more adult tone, I think what I really meant was dramatic Mm -hmm. If that makes sense? Because I wonder how much, and this is going to be a hot question, which movie do you think knew what it was doing in terms of tone more? Do you think the Mm. 77 version was a little more, okay, we are just a straight Disney musical. This is exactly what we're doing. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Or do you think the 2016 version was a little too, I don't want to say it was muddled, but it didn't particularly try to be like a Disney movie or like a kid's movie.
1: Well, actually, I feel like Disney during that time was really, that was around the same time they were doing Jungle Book, the same. Mm -hmm. They were hitting a lot of the kid in wilderness type thing. Oh yeah, they were. And so like, I kind of go like, I think Disney knew exactly what they were doing in 2016. Like they, uh, whether that was the wise decision to have similar films coming out near the same time. But um, regardless of that, I think that for those who are listening, Alana shrugged. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Update, she shrugged. It's just like, I like that she shrugged, and I'm like, they're not gonna know that you did that. <laughs> Did
0: they need to
2: know?
1: Yes, it was essential that they World need
2: needs to know.
1: World needs to know that I say things and Alana just shrugs them off. That's really <laughs> important for your audience to know that. (laughs) almost prudent. But yeah, so I think that Disney 2016 absolutely knew what they were doing. And also maybe even still trying to figure out the we're converting a thing into live action, like still going through the process of learning what that was, while also doing it while completely changing what they were doing. It was not going to be a musical, you know, and trying to, I think as they have done with most of their live actions, strip it down, have almost different experiences when you're watching the not necessarily Peace dragon, but like all the other ones like Cinderella and Mulan and all that stuff that they kind of strip it down to a singular thing as opposed to they're animated so they can have separate experiences when you're watching both and Peace Dragon was probably the first one that was like we're well Jungle Book does it a little bit is also more dramatic than the it's animated so I think Peace Dragon was very much trying to do a blueprint copy paste almost thing there as opposed to 77 where I think that they also, it's a formula for them. There's like, we're going to have music. We're going to have dancing. We're going to have a kid that is going to be cute running around. We're going to have an adult figure that we're going to fall in love with because they love this character. And then we'll have a happy ending. Like, I think that both were very aware of what they were doing. If you're asking me who knew it best, I would say 2016 because of just because Mm. of the films that were coming out during that time. It's like, okay, we get it, Disney. Kid in Wilderness needs help. We got it. (laughs)
0: Well, I also think one of my notes I wrote down, because I'm one of those nerds that likes to take notes while watching films for their podcast. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I had, which I don't have the answer to, at least for 1977, is who was in charge of Disney at that point? Oh, And like, what was their intention? Because I feel like you can talk about Disney really by their CEOs. So the Michael Eisner reign, for lack of a better word, is very different than like the Bob Iger reign. Actually, I would say the Michael Eisner reign is all about trying to make specifically the parks appeal to adults and movies that appeal to adults. Like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, if I'm correct, that came out during the Eisner period. Whereas Bob Iger was much more about the acquisition of Star Wars and the acquisition of Marvel and really making more of a cohesive brand across those properties that they acquired. So I kind yeah. of understand what like mid to late two thousands
1: Eisner was one hundred percent. How do I make the most amount of money from the IP that I have? Because I mean, mm-hmm. my King one and a half. That's all I gotta say. And Oof, fighting like, words. Hey, no, I'm not even saying it's bad. I'm just saying in the sense that like. How many random sequels have we had that was directed video at the time, like Pocahontas 2, that would logically today make zero sense for them to do? It was very much, you're right about all the things that Eisner did, but I think the big thing for him was how do I profit off of this successful thing that... Not necessarily everybody doesn't do this. Everyone does. But the way that mm-hmm, he did mm-hmm. it was almost, there's a level of devaluing that happened because of that sense to the point where we couldn't even touch those franchises for such a long time. And the idea of, you know, the Disney vault. Oh, well, get them now or else the, it goes back in the Disney vault. I don't think that exists anymore. Aww, and so, I
0: remember that though.
1: Yeah, but like I, th- it was how do I make these Properties as lucrative as possible, and I'll make and I will run them to the ground if it Mm -hmm. needs. As opposed
0: to one movie, I'm going to give the Michael Eisner period if it is, in fact, the Michael Eisner period. I'm sure a lot of people are going to at me about this Hidalgo. Hidalgo was a great adult action-adventure movie that kids could also enjoy. It was the Viggo Mortensen and the Horse (laughs) film where he goes on the race across the desert. And great. Wow. I will give him, that is a great movie. I
1: forgot this existed.
0: Well, you know, I think it got lost in the Pirates of the Caribbean and National Treasure shuffle. Because those were also, again, like how do we kind of appeal to adults but also appeal to kids? And I feel like Hidalgo, Pirates of the Caribbean, and national treasure all kind of fall into that category
1: that is crazy I totally like you just flashed me back to 2000s man dang um
0: I love Hidalgo and we got to feature that on the podcast somehow everyone go watch Hidalgo it's Viggo Mortensen on a horse in the desert and there's sword fights it's great oh and freaking Omar Sharif is in it who doesn't love Omar Sharif go see Omar Um, Sharif in Hidalgo
1: So anyway. good. So good that Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 46%. That's how actually now looking at it, it 46% on Rotten Tomatoes, but 89% on Google, across Google users. So that's an interesting difference. I um, mean,
0: it's not surprising, though, because I even feel like National Treasure is another one of those movies where the critics didn't love it. I shouldn't say audiences are like, oh, National Treasure. But it's more of, oh, you know, it's a Saturday afternoon. I want to watch something fun and light and, you know, speedy. Oh, I'll turn on National Treasure on Disney+. Plus
1: Okay, fair enough. But anyway, sorry, back to... Uh, back to I- Pete Stray. So, like, you're right. I like, was very much about, yes, we will... Actually, his philosophy was much more... Eisner was pump up as many movies as possible. And Eigner was like, no the least amount of movies as possible.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: And Disney, before they got Marvel and all of them, like I think was only putting out four films a year. I know that's an exaggeration, but they, every year it was of the major studios, they were putting out the least amount. And then you have them go, okay, who? yeah, you're right. Who can we acquire that's going to bring out the brand? So while Eisner was more, how much more money can we get off this IP? Iger was much more, What's the IP to make the brand bigger? Mm Because it will be worth it in the long run, and that was more of the thing. I think Michael uh, Eisner was more: how can we get more money now? As opposed like day to
0: day, almost rather than like in 2025, what do we want?
1: Yeah, like there's a reason why Pocahontas 2 was not in theaters and that it was a direct video release because at that time, you know, the blockbusters of the world, that type of money was good and it didn't cost as much to put it up on the big screen and all sort of stuff. I get it. It totally makes sense. That's why you have all these videos kids all on videotape during the 90s like it totally makes sense why they did it that way the only thing i think they acquired was it abc during that time was he there when they acquired abc if that's true. that is a
0: good question because i'm also trying to remember if they acquired abc and espn at the same time because from the imagineering story i learned that bob Iger was the ceo or like one of the big poobahs at espn for a long time and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons they picked Iger to be the next ceo after yes. eisner
1: So yeah, ABC was bought in 95. And so that, I feel like that was really the, like when they're trying to do the vertical integration type stuff, I guess that's really where um, I I came in. But yeah, you're right. Iger is very much what IP is going to help us make this brand bigger than what it already is. It's ridiculous when you think about um, Disney buying, you know, 20th Century Fox and like, man, this is large. Like, are they gonna make their money back within not even two years they've already made it back and are just like killing it so like i think I either mean, was much more about the long-term longevity of disney and especially with disney plus that are now coming down the docket too on a global international level michael just and again for its time great smart disney was still great but i would say a lot of ip got watered down because of that to mm-hmm. try mm-hmm. to get the quick buck
0: well now that makes me wonder because i'm remembering the big If I am correct, I'm just going to Google it.
1: Episode six. Let me tell you, this is, I don't know if you'll edit this stuff out, but this is fantastic. Your your audience is getting authentic looking up on Google while on the podcast level. Oh my God. Well, my first
0: thought, oh, okay. No, it actually came out the year before because my first thought was, I wonder also if they Because the budget for the 2016 Peach Dragon was $40 million. And I was wondering if they were trying to get one more kind of mid-budget movie that they could put out right before what I thought was going to be Star Wars The Force Awakens. but That actually came out the year before in 2015. But I do think it's interesting because I just thought of this. This is one of the last kind of mid-budget movies Disney made for a really long time. Because after that, it became really about like the big budget Disney remakes, Star Wars and Marvel, which are all at least 90 to $100 million movies, which I think is really interesting too in terms of diversity of box office and also basically how much money you're spending on films versus how much you get back on the films, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, but I think that, you know how when Netflix started, everybody talks about, oh man, the first originals, Orange is the New Black and- Like House of Cards. House of Cards, like they're the first original. They weren't. The first original ones were Hamlock Grove and Lilyhammer. But nobody knows that. Or back when Apple Plus started, like the first show they ever did was Carpool Karaoke. I feel like now that's a bit unfair for Disney because I think the Cinderella's live action came before. So it's not like they were like learning on the job there. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like to your point of the big things, it was almost like these films were kind of like, let's try this out to learn how to make these type of things so then when we decide to go these giant budget ones we've tried it we've done it and we now know what we're doing now we're going to go mm-hmm. 100% into this and Almost
0: that's good. sorry to interrupt but I just realized that's how I feel about the director David Lowry, actually because I haven't been able to find any articles on it but I'm very curious to know if this was his first CGI heavy movie. I don't know if there were any small effects that were CGI of any kind in um, Them Body Saints, which was his movie before this. Yeah. I'm really curious to know if his experience with all the CGI on this film, on Pete's Dragon, Helped him to go on to make the upcoming Green Knight, which, from what I can tell, has like a bunch of practical effects and special effects. And the same mm. for actually the 1977 Peach Dragon, where a lot of those animators, first of all, Don Bluff worked on it and went on to do a troll in Central Park. And <laughs> a lot of the key animators on Peach Dragon, a lot of those guys oh, yeah. went on like 10 years later to go work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which used a lot of the same technology, because just kind of like souped up. So it is kind of interesting to think of the these movies, not just story-wise, but also how they're made as kind of stepping stones to larger things.
1: And I think that also helps in the sense of making it, the story really simple because I think that the bigger films are at least trying to have like just more than one thing and all sort of stuff. And so like if you're only spending so much money on a thing, don't overcomplicate it. Make it streamlined, make it simple. Um, so that way I just kind of stand it so we can one, recoup on the budget, but also we're just trying to figure out things here. We don't need it to be the most ridiculous Integrated, and that's not to say that the uh, like the director or the producer or the writers didn't put their all and put their best into it, but I'm sure that there was like let's make sure on this branch uh, on this tree, which is the plot, we don't have all these different branches going on, Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm. let's stay
1: on the stump as much as possible. Um, because we're not trying to do Mad Men out here. We're not trying. I know I just compared that to a TV show. I apologize, but um, how dare not- you talk about TV? Look, man, my Twitter is literally Joe might like TV for a reason. Um, it, is. TV, it is. TV is my. That was like such an unintended shout out, by the way. <laughs> I, I
0: mean, not- we were gonna hyperlink it below. Don't even but, worry about that. That
1: was not meant to be an actual like. Hey, hit me up on Twitter. Like that was just. The but camera.
0: really, hit him up on Twitter. Oh my! Goodness.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, I it feels like I, I just feel like it. It felt a bit more oh streamlined because they're trying things out. Not that they're necessarily experimenting, but they're trying to figure what went well with these type of things, so that way they can carry them out for their big franchise. Mm-hmm. At least that's how it feels, and that's funny considering that this Peach Dragon is that way while their 77 Dragon was well after those type of films. As you say, 20 years in the making. So that's actually very interesting that one was well past that era of um, films, while the 2016 one probably was the preemptive film for the type of films Disney does now.
0: We'll skip number three, because you're still thinking about it. So one thing I thought was, that was, you want me to ask it? Okay.
1: Do, Do whatever you want. It's your podcast. I was like, as I i've said, been told
0: that multiple times everyone's like you're being too nice it's your podcast like
1: okay, well first put off, us on the, the spot you're not nice at all you're very rude it's uh, true i'm a terrible person She is the worst i don't know why people keep coming on this podcast
0: behind this pale pale facade of golden girls and vegan food it's
1: just a whole lot of crazy stuff i didn't know you were you were just a vegan now Was that, was that? No, I
0: actually, fun fact for all y'all, I can't be a vegan anymore, at least for another year because I'm so severely vitamin B12 deficient that I have to take supplements and I have to eat steak at least once a week or salmon.
1: Wow. Yeah. I didn't even
2: know you were
0: vegan in the first place. Well, it was like vegetarian slash as dairy-free as possible.
1: I knew the dairy-free.
0: I was like a Brooklyn vegan where it's like, I'm a vegan, but I also really love, like, Ample Hills,
1: which, P.S., Ample Hills is amazing. I feel like you did, like, a Valley Girl accent (laughs) to describe someone from Brooklyn. (laughs) That's how people from Brooklyn talk, like. I think that's the Valley girl who moved to Brooklyn for their like... Which is
0: what Brooklyn is, a bunch of Valley girls and trust fund kids. I that, think like, moved
1: just about Williamsburg. I think that's the only place that has that.
0: Well, that's the joke that my... Boyfriend's dad is always joking with his brother and his brother's girlfriend, like, you know, my grandkids are gonna sound like, "Hey, Grandma." I was like, no one talks <laughs> like that in Brooklyn anymore. Sir, no. they talk like this, oh just so like affected, wow. and,
1: like oh, wow. okay. conscious
0: of the world around them. Mm.
1: Now, you see, everyone, that's Alana's real voice. That's actually her <laughs> one. That's
0: my real voice.
1: That vocal fry, man. Just, it's just, going
0: to be, this is going to feel great when I'm 45. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay, sorry. Back on track. Okay. What's, what's the okay. it, um Ask me what you want. Even if I have to struggle through it, it's fine.
0: You got this. So uh, one of the reasons I brought you onto the show is because you specifically aim to tell stories for young adults, for young people. Mm -hmm. I love young adults. I love children. I don't know how to write a story for them. (laughs) I genuinely don't. So like, what do you think is important for telling stories to young audiences? And do you think Mm -hmm. either of those films had that or more importantly, didn't have that?
1: Well, I think that the main thing, it just really depends because I feel like you have the films, like what what Peace Dragon, I think both of them try to do is more in the sense of, hey, children, Look at this, like this thing that you look at it with awe and you're entertained, but at the same time, you slightly learn a thing. Like, it's like the Goonies. You're there just mm-hmm. for the adventure. Mm-hmm. You're there for just the fun or even Shrek, you know, like it, you're there for the fun and stuff. And I do think that's primarily the reason why you do kids shows is just to, like, make them laugh, make them have fun, make them just like build a world that they would want to be in. the primary thing for everybody i would say though for so that's generally like on a why and i know that i'm also speaking that in all films like of course we all want to build a world that like we all just want to have fun in or like disappear for two and a half hours but i think with kids it's a little bit more important because if it's not fun and the characters are not like somebody that they relate to they're just going to tune out it's not going to be something Um, which is why, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old kids aren't watching Mad Men. It's not.
0: They're not? not,
1: No, or, or, or I guess a better version would be like Avatar. Like they're not going out to watch Avatar. Because like, wow, to us, that's an interesting world is because of what that represents in the adult themes that we know, as opposed to the kids ones where they're just like, oh, cool, blue aliens jumping around, but they don't really know what's happening. For the most part, creating worlds that they would understand and just they want to be in and can see themselves in. And I think that's the primary thing. For me, specifically, for the YA shows I'm creating, I think that a lot of the YA content that's out there now is about what's creating a world that is relatable to kids, that are relatable to the 6 to 11, to the 12s through 17s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I consider young adult up until you're uh, 25. Technically, if you're like the CW audience, that is 35 would be the max. But I would say like for the young adult area, let's say 26 to 25. Like that's like, mm-hmm. well, sorry, now I have to rethink that. Tween is like uh, 6 through 11. Young adults would probably be 12 and in- through 25. That's what I consider. That's not official uh, demographics. That's me, like, when I write as far as the type of stuff that I like to write. And so for me, my goal is always to be a bit of a couple steps ahead of them. I go, okay, let's create these characters that are relatable, but I would rather create characters that are aspirational characters that strive for a little bit past where mm-hmm. they are. So it's kind of like a really bad example would be the West Wing again, I'm sorry for bringing TV into it, but um, the West Wing, I think all of us look at President Bartlett and go like that is an aspirational character or on Parks and Recreation, Leslie Nope is a aspirational character. Mm-hmm. Are they both relatable? Yes. Uh, Well, President Bartlett kind of is. Um, But um, both, they are relatable people, but they also have goals and traits that make them aspirational. So when the series ends, we all wish that, The president was closer to President Bartlett. And now guess what? We had President Obama. We wish a little bit that the world was a little bit closer, saw the world as Leslie Nope does. And that's why you get a lot of people who are now caring about like the environment, about politics, especially for women. And now since then, we've had more women being brought into the Congress since then. Not saying that there's a direct correlation, but there is something to be said that that was not the case before the show premiered. And so I think that for young adults, I think for me personally, is it is about making sure that they're entertained, making sure that they learn, you know, have their veggies too. Like they, they do learn a certain lesson. But I think part of that for me is that don't just give them the lessons, give them the character, give them the character that they see themselves potentially wanting to be. And when the kid just, you know, the thing they learn is family, which again, not a bad thing, but if the thing is learn is family, that's nice. But what did they learn about themselves? What's the thing that they will now strive and aspire for in the future that's going to help them? And that's what I view as far as like what young adult shows should or and films should have. Bring them a world that's entertaining, but give them a character that they want to be, that they can see themselves sinking their teeth in. How many people want to be Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor? It's because they also have these awesome powers, but it's about what they represent Mm -hmm. in the sense of saving humanity or making humanity slightly better. That's how I feel about young adults. Give them the tools and the traits that make them want to push society a little bit progressively.
0: Alrighty, we're going to take a quick breather and be right back after this commercial break. So stick around. Hey everyone, Alana here, and it's been a lot of fun making this podcast. I get to talk about what I love, meet some really cool people doing it, and I have total creative freedom. Are you interested in making your own podcast? Go for it, and go for it with Anchor. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more platforms. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And best of all, it's free. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back. So, as you can tell from the first half of this conversation, Joe and I agree on most things, but for the next half of this conversation, things might get, one might say, a little heated, maybe even a little fiery, like a dragon's breath. Okay, I even embarrassed myself with that joke. Last terrible joke of the season, promise? Let's get back to it. You know what I thought was very interesting was how like similar yet different the endings to each movie were. And I thought that they had like very different connotations. Do you think either of them resonated a little more emotionally than the other? Or do you think like
1: By far, seventy seven was way more effective. What? Way more effective. What? because the ending yes because let me preference it with this the 2015 version i think cheapened the uh cheapened the story for me because it's about family and i understand you say you don't want spoilers and so no, I'm we'll to-
0: just do a minor spoiler warning here and then i'll let you know when the spoilers are done so
1: spoiler 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 Go ahead. It's only going to be, it's only a five second spoiler. So you can press the 15 second forward button super easily, and you'll be fine. But in 2015 version, I get it. It's about family. He has a family and also the dragon now has a family. Cool. Great. Awesome. Everybody's happy. Okay. And spoiler. But in in the 77 one, oh, well, I guess this is another spoiler. Oops. Spoiler, <laughs> yeah. spoiler. Go ahead. Go um, ahead, sir. But the, but the 77 version, he leaps. The dragon goes like, you found a family now. You have your people I can now help other kids who are also struggling. And I felt like that was a much more effective thing because when you're a kid in 77 and you feel alone and you feel like, oh, I relate to Pete. And then Pete finally got a family and you have the idea that Pete the dragon can come and actually help you because he helped him and so now that Pete's like, okay, my job is done. He is no longer alone. Let me go out and actually like find the other kids and the other children. That's hope for them. That's like, hey, I can now use Pete's dragon as my imagined character. So I feel less alone while also building the development for Pete going like, hey, I had my friend. Now I have real humans that are around me. I can now develop as a normal human being because I've had that experience. And now I have a family to get me there. In 2015, it almost feels like it stunts his development because he's always Going to be constantly going back to that dragon to almost a remind him of the trauma that he just went through with his parents dying, and then that's how he met this guy. So will he truly get over that psychological trauma? But then two, who says the dragon is good? Like so, they eventually the dragon is gonna die, so he's gonna have to deal with that too. And so like not being able to let him go, not being able to have that like moment of okay, I'm officially moving on, learn how to be a better human, grow up, be a normal kid but instead every once a year you're going to the north to (laughs) go visit your dragon who already has his own family and should probably focus on that family too. You know, I just feel like in the beginning, I get it. I understand the message, but I felt like that kind of stunts the development, that, that the stunts the like, okay, let the imagination go. I know he's real, but let him grow to be a kid so then you can go and help the other kids. That was just such a, that wasn't even better with me. That was me.
0: Joe was just slapping his hand multiple times. I thought you all should know
1: that. I'm just disappointed. I'm so disappointed. Um, I, like was to the aspirational aspect in me. That's very like a kid should grow. And it's, I mean, you know, I know that there's some films like never grow up. And I get that. But for me, it just, man, it's a lost opportunity for me.
0: That is a very interesting perspective. I, emotionally responded differently because okay. for me when Elliot in the original Peach Dragon said he's gonna like go find another kid I think also one thing the kids really like to feel is feel special feel like they're very individual and they're like chosen for a specific reason mm-hmm. so if Elliot's like I'm just gonna go find some other lost kid by like kid number 75 on my list mm-hmm. I could see him being like what do you mean I'm not the only kid <laughs> <laughs> whereas in the 2015 one and I think that's why I resonated with it more it felt like he's never what Pete and what Elliot have is so special and so unique to them that there's never going to be anything else that replaces that or replicates that Mm -hmm. and I think that's why I resonated much more with that ending and I did see in 2015 Peach Dragon there was Elliot being like yo you gotta be with the other humans now I love you but and that could buy like I think also realistically that goodbye would be much more painful than in the 1977 version where he's just like, okay, bye, bye, waving.
1: (laughs) I'm trying to think of a good
0: waving joke, but I can't think of anything appropriate. But anyway, you know, that separation, and I think growing up in some ways and becoming an adult... Is painful, and I thought the 2015 version reflected that in a way that I resonated with more.
1: And I look, I I understand that like they've been together six years, and literally the reason he is alive. So I understand that like mm. you can't just like <laughs> just buy. But I do follow you in the sense of you feel him being special. Um, especially considering we in the 2016 version we are watching them meet for the first time we don't get that in the 77 version so to us he's just like we come in when they're just hiding from people so we never get that oh i just remember when you came to me and that why that's why resonated later it's just like i mean he came to you but then he also you know he was always there for you for the tough times but now the tough times are over Mm -hmm. Now it's time for you to develop as a normal person, be a regular kid, be with the kids at the school and do all those normal things. There's other kids that are in trouble. And so I need to go uh, help them. And I just resonated with that in the sense of what a great way to, well, as a Disney person, if I'm going to go down this, you know, capitalism merchandising right away. Because now you Mm -hmm. can like, oh, well, now I have my Pete's Dragon because he's here to protect me. In some level, you watch that, you go like, okay, well, now I'm struggling. I'm going through hard times. Now I have Pete's Dragon. You're now sharing it. You're now Mm -hmm. sharing the moment and the chance for you, the audience, to feel special. While 2016, and I guess this goes back to intent, I do think that it does emphasize the special part of it is cool. And I get that. I just feel like...
0: He wants to disagree with me so badly. Yeah, It's it's
1: more in the sense... (laughs) Again, it comes back to when I watch films, it comes back down to when this film ends, does this person grow? Do I have a clearer idea in my head that where this person was at the beginning of the film to where he is at the end of the film, would those two people do anything different? Let's say the person at the beginning of the film gets to the end, doesn't do anything in the middle, just gets to the end of the film. Would that person do anything different than if that person had gone through all the stuff that they went through? And it felt to me that in the 77 version, that kid had to go through all the stuff and able to get to where he is and will be fine because the dragon's left. And so now he has the opportunity to become this person. While I feel like the 2016 version, it's almost like the person from the beginning that I met is the same person at the end of the film. is almost like, what was the point of the the middle? All it was was you have a family now. Like, that's all it was.
0: To play a little devil, I don't know if this is devil's advocate or not. You need devil's advocate, I
1: don't mind. I do
0: think if we're really leaning into that nature versus modernity thing that the 2016 version really leaned into, it does kind of make sense. Not that like he doesn't change at all, but there's still very much that wild connected to the environment thing intact in him. Cause it almost feels like it is saying nature, whether it's within somebody or like out in the world and the trees in the forest and whatnot, it is unchangeable and that's how it should stay. So I do feel like that was kind of intentional. Perhaps.
1: But then have him grow up to be an adult, have his own kids. And then he goes off and goes like, let's try to find my dragon because he's always out there. And then he becomes the- Like the Robert uh,
0: Redford storyteller. The teller. Robert
1: Redford person because then it becomes, he was able to continue growing without Pete, but like knows that he, or Elliot, but continues the search, continues to try to find him, continues to, live, like, that magic continue.
0: Ooh, that is good, because then it's like continued protecting of the environment.
1: Thank you, and it still gives him the agency to have been able to grow on his own, which is what kids should do. Like, they shouldn't. I still really I like the to... ending, though. You can still like it. I'm, I'm not even saying that I disliked it. Maybe I mm-hmm. did, but I really don't. <laughs> Maybe I did say that, but in comparison, I—it's I, not that I disliked the ending. I mm-hmm. understand what, what it was trying to do, and it was cool. It was—I was a little bit mad that he didn't jump like he did in the beginning, like he jumped off the ledge. I know.
0: And, like, I was like, is he gonna
2: jump? No, like, never
1: mind. Come on, like you gotta give me that again. And then he rides off of all the dragons. Like, come on, Disney, you gotta think of these things. But I think I, I'm just so. About can I visualize this person moving forward and being that different person from where he was at the beginning? And for me, it just wasn't there. And I understand the points. I absolutely do. I was just more disappointed that I'd rather have him been able to bring that to the future as they carry on, as opposed to everybody just goes like, ah, remember when we had that dragon? Crazy times. It's just more about <laughs> like I like that the fact that it kind of becomes lore a bit like in the Mm -hmm. 77 one all the townspeople finally go like hooray for uh, for elliot we all like elliot and it's like those songs Mm -hmm. it kind of in a way comes off as a lore song a legacy song that's going to be sung forever while after he's gone and you have that memory along with it too and it just felt like the 2015 version 16 version just kind of like it's not really lore anymore it's not Mm -hmm. story anymore and it may it might have been lore
0: if you see, like thirty-something-year-old Pete being like, "If you look to the north,
1: yeah." Look, I'm not saying bring Shia LaBeouf to be a dad. Like, I, I understand why <laughs> oh, you don't. Do no, that. don't bring Shia LaBeouf. Don't. Hey, he's in the Disney family. They could have done it I was for a more scene. Like Chris um, Evans. Uh, was also ah. Uh, no, Chris Evans more money. He's fine. <laughs> like he, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm just saying. For me personally, I like the fact that you set it up so that he could grow. And I feel like the 2016 version, is not that he won't grow. It's not like he won't get better, but I feel like he will always be, and I get the special connection with the dragon, but I wanted that special connection to dragon to always be in his heart, not something that you have to see. Mm -hmm. In the same way Mm -hmm. in the beginning of the film that Robert Redford didn't, he saw it, but like for 60 years, he had been writing that trope of, hey, maybe I did not, maybe I didn't see it. There, Maybe it's something, but it's that magic. I still remember that magic. Mm -hmm. And I wish that we had that moment at the end with him where it almost didn't matter that we had to see the physical dragon. It was about the magic about it and being able to pass that on forever. This is why I'm "I'm an adult writer. This is the stuff, man. This is
0: why Nickelodeon and Disney Channel and all the people should give him work. Anyway, so... (laughs) Speaking of writing, do you think that there were parts of either film that were slightly or very underdeveloped? I know I have mine. Go ahead. Yeah. Or do you think thought. that, like, for the audience, those parts that didn't have like a whole B plot going on were there enough so that it didn't distract from everything else? I'm specifically thinking about the brother plot line yeah. in the 2016 version where, yeah, it's underdeveloped. You don't exactly get what their thing is that they're clashing over. But I also think it was there enough that it wasn't like we have Pete and his dragon and then we have like this whole sibling rivalry thing that's just another thing happening, going on.
1: And honestly, I don't even, it wasn't a rivalry. I think it was just more like, if it was a rivalry, it would have come off much more evil, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the problem why it didn't feel like a rivalry to me was because I was missing, really I was missing the stakes And two, what really was Keith Urban? Uh, Wasn't that Keith Urban, right? Carl Urban. Carl Urban, uh, Urban, which is very odd watching him on The Boys and then having seen him on this is like, this is weird. This is not, you are not supposed to be in this kid's movie after what I've seen you do. Uh, Oh no. But um, yeah, I think that, just because like my main problem with that film was the weird stuff when the brother asks like somebody like hey where's my brother and he goes like he said something about like going hunting and i'm like but what what why (laughs) like what is the actual goal for him going after this thing like i'm not a hundred especially considering the first time he lost so he goes back same stuff i guess he has tranquilizers now but like in essence, it doesn't come up with anything better. It's just like, I. so I caught this dragon and then very pointedly they go like, so what are you going to do with it? He goes like, I don't know. That was my problem. Like mm-hmm. my main problem was mm-hmm. the, like there wasn't really any stakes because even the brother didn't know what he was doing. He was just going after a thing and it felt like you're forcing a plot point. So that way it makes it so that Pete has to do the things that he has to do and the family has to do what they have to do to... Continue this plot to save Elliot to keep it moving, and so that's why it didn't feel very rivalry because it didn't feel like mm-hmm. internal development, internal conflict was really there. So if you want to talk under development, it was really not the brother rivalry, just the brother not really having a true "I am against this dragon" because,
0: mm-hmm. or I want to use this dragon for, etc., yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. Yeah.
1: With the 77 one, while you can argue about the execution, whether it was executed well, that was a very clear, I have all these fake medicines,
2: Mm -hmm. but
1: now this dragon can actually make me legitimate. Like that is a great way. It's a
0: tangible thing.
1: It's a tangible thing but also just in the sense of like he's always been seen as this croc but now he has the motivation not just to get this dragon but also to not be a croc anymore to be actually legitimized and that is in itself a brilliant internal conflict because now he's driven to not just get this dragon but also be considered a real doctor and that ultimately and yes money is a part of it but i would also imagine on an internal conflict type way oh, there's a chance for me to actually be a real person, to actually Mm -hmm. really help Mm -hmm. people, I absolutely need to take advantage of that, even if I am an evil person. Like, that is where it becomes less of a villain and more of an antagonist, Mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense. Uh, Just for the viewers, just so I can explain, like, a villain just is like the Joker, where you're just... Angry for angry's sake, there's no real logical reason for it. As opposed to an antagonist, which is just like, you can be, antagonist, all it is, is you're against the goal of the protagonist. It doesn't make you evil. I mean, in some cases, it can make you evil. In most cases, it should. But it doesn't always have to. An antagonist can be your best friend. Look at younger. How often do our friends in that show have arguments against each other so in certain episodes uh, certain friends are antagonists just because it prevents the goal of the protagonist and when you give me a reason outside of the external conflict which is i must get dragon to make medicine better but the internal one is oh i'm a croc but i have a chance not to be one that then makes me that brings me in 2016 version does not do that
0: I feel like this also just became a really good, like, screenwriting lesson podcast episode, which I am here for because I'm all about democratizing filmmaking education for the masses. Anyway, no, I agree. Yeah, no, I'm just going to say, yeah, man. No, I agree. I'm also going to say, come on, man. What are we doing out here, man?
1: <laughs> come on, man. What are we doing out here, man?
0: Oh, that takes me back to our tele-amazing days. Oh,
1: yeah. Nostalgia. Uh, I honestly have not said it since I left New York.
0: I probably made you say it many times because you used to say it a lot in New York. So it'd be like, yeah. come on, let's say it.
1: But also, they needed to be said. That's true. I was. Easily, fu- uh, not easily frustrated, but it was. It was sometimes I'm like, let's come on. Let's, I
0: mean, let's get- I mean, New York is a very frustrating place. I love it. It's a very frustrating place. <laughs> Question number six A. So <laughs> I was reading. One thing I like to do as part of research is I like to read the reviews for films because I feel like they're a very good. I guess you would say like litmus test for what the culture is or viewpoints people are bringing to films and one review that i thought was really interesting was the slant magazine review Mm -hmm. which wasn't super favorable but it said that the film is about the preservation of the nuclear family which do you agree or disagree with because i disagree with that for specific reasons
1: um also because it was almost like bro have you watched the disney film (laughs) exactly how often two words found family yeah it's like like, bro like how many times does disney have films where there's no mom or no dad or they're the only kid i'm sorry Like, i want to count marvel
0: spider-man lives with his aunt may like
1: like, look bro bro, i understand your point I, i understand that like the mom and dad family of four trope thing I get it I understand but bro we're talking about Disney man <laughs> like this is not just because they do it once in a blue moon doesn't mean that like they're now like all about the preservation of the nuclear family and also is that necessarily like I think we should as in media like there should be very varied, varied uh types of families like you know the single mom the single dad um the orphan that gets um mm-hmm. um foster found,
0: parents like in Shazam parents.
1: Yeah, or or the Fosters, like literally two mm-hmm. lesbian, like a, a lesbian couple that have like three or four kids. You know, um, ABC Family, R.I.P. Uh, I guess they're not R.I.P. I guess they're Freeform now, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but like it's, it, for me, yes, uh, I do. I think that it was about preservation of the nuclear family. No, because a when we meet that family, Bryce Dallas Howard, Grace character, Grace. She's not even married. She has a boy, a boyfriend, fiance, and he has a daughter. So apparently their mother, something happened with them. And Pete had two um, parents that apparently, that apparently, that does pass away. Mm-hmm. And bringing up a nuclear family, this is the most like- Yep. Her that, mom
0: died as well. I remember her saying that her mom yes. died when she was
1: young. Yeah. And so it's just like, I'm sorry. There's a, there's a, a lot of death has happened in this family. And so- I don't necessarily, is it a mom and dad with a family of, uh, is it a family of four? Yes. But that is not a traditional family. I even feel like in the
0: 1977 Pete's Dragon, I don't want to say it's anti-nuclear family, but the one nuclear family, which is like the family that, taught him, basically, Yeah, <laughs> they're the absolute worst, whereas his basically adoptive mom, played by Helen Letty, and his adoptive grandpa, like, that's not a traditional nuclear family at all, and we're supposed it to, like, not. love and adore them.
1: it's not. It's like, I'm sorry, is Stuart Little a nuclear family? Technically, it's a mom and dad with two kids. It's a family of four, so, like, are we now saying that Stuart Little is about nuclear family? It's just like, oh, get out of here, man. Sorry. I just... Have you watched Disney films? No, was I didn't even think, think of that.
0: Like, it's a Disney film. Of course, there's not going to be a traditional family. I'm trying to think of a film. I legit can't think of a Disney film in the last, like, 10 years that I've watched where both parents are alive.
1: Oh, I'm sure they're going.
0: There all are. Actually, the only thing I can think of, and it technically wasn't made when it was owned by Disney, but I think in Thor, both the king and the queen... That are technically, oh, no, no, no. Because spoiler alert, Loki technically isn't blood related to them. And that's the I mean, whole thing. Never mind. Never Mulan, mind.
1: I mean, in Milan, the mom and dad are together.
0: Thank you. That is the one I can yeah. think of. Thank you. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And so like, it, it, it is, it has happened. It is possible. <laughs> but, but it's not the norm for Disney. So the one time they do it, which is, again, still non-traditional. I feel like that's just... Uh, That's just, get out of here, dude. That's all. I feel like that was also
0: kind of, to get mildly political, I feel like that was putting a political lens on a movie that was not Mm -hmm. very political, unless you want to count like nature conservancy as a political issue, which I personally think is just like an issue but that's just my two cents.
1: I think that's what it comes down to, right? It's the, I think that we're in a culture now that could we have more representation of different types of families? Absolutely. I'm down for that. But I think we are getting to a point where at least when we're talking strictly Disney movies, they're allowed to bring in the family of four once in a while, because they also exist in America. Like, I think the whole idea is making sure that we don't just have those films or just those movies. But Again, because it's Disney, I think that attacking them for that is such a low blow and a silly blow considering how, they, how often they don't do that now. Mm-hmm. So, no. And again, like I said, even if I wanted to give it credibility and go like, yeah, it is. Back to, you have one person whose mother died when they were really young. You have another one whose wife apparently passed away because they have a kid. And you have Pete whose parents both died and lived in a wilderness for six years. That is not the traditional nuclear family (laughs) whatsoever. So I think we can call off the dogs on that one.
0: Call off the dogs. I also want to be very clear you're allowed to write a bad review for a movie. There's nothing wrong with that, but trying to say, no matter what movie you're talking about, Disney, not Disney, whatever. When you're trying to say that the movie is like intending on doing something, unless the director or the creative people behind it said, we wanted to talk about this. Mm -hmm. You can't really say, oh, they're really just trying to like say that you cannot, when writing film review, take like creative authority over Mm -hmm. that. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And I think I mean, that's when I get really annoyed with film reviews when they try to take that authority.
1: I think it's more of like, I think intention is important, but also to... Uh accountability of unintended consequences i think that we should be able to like talk about again i'm sorry your your phone podcast but again i know tv so like tv that's stuff okay
0: is- jazzing yeah. things up a bit
1: yeah but like talk about bridgerton like there's a whole problem with the idea of an african-american getting being sexually assaulted and they never have the conversation as to why that is a bad thing afterwards and mm-hmm. that was a choice that was made that I think that the creators will tell you that the it was intended because it's the 1800s and yada 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 yada. But I think that it's yeah, their intention was not to make it that way. It was completely a different other way. But you are allowed to, as a critic or as a viewer, to be able to take that license to go like, no, it's because of your lack of awareness that this is a problem, and you need to. We need to. Uh, whole-
0: okay. See, I was talking about something slightly different. I was thinking more along the lines of like when people say that The Shining is Stanley Kubrick's apology for the Apollo, for, like, faking the moon landing, that's what I mean by when critics are like, he said he made a movie about, like, the writing process, but what he really meant to do was, like, make an apology for faking the moon landing. Like, that's what I don't like. I totally agree with you on the Bridgerton point.
1: Absolutely. That I've never heard of, and that's...
0: Oh, you've never heard that?
1: That is the weirdest...
0: Yeah, that is a weird conspiracy theory that Stanley Kubrick helped fake the moon landing and so like the Apollo 11 sweater and like a couple of other details people put together are there are people that insist that the movie is all about him apologizing to the world for faking the moon landing or at least faking like the filmed version of the moon landing (laughs) Joe is silent and stunned right now everyone needs to know this I just blew his mind
1: people need some milk man i don't know how (laughs) i i they i'm wow okay um by the way here's a little hole in that conspiracy by the way you don't think that nasa the government would have paid stanley kubrick a ridiculous amount of money to keep that secret like let's let's all like protect like you don't, I just find that just atrocious. <laughs> this is all anyway. Sorry. I have to digress. I think it's okay to be able to be mm-hmm. critical about a thing. Um, be like, hey, you say it's this one thing, but y'all kind of messed up on this. I actually have no problem with that.
0: Yeah, that I am fine with.
1: Just, you know, look, again, it's very Avengers. It's not Endgame. What was the, what what was before Endgame. Infinity War? But it's very Avengers Infinity Wars. It's like if you get it aim for the king, you best not miss. And she missed. Because like if you watch the Disney film, like clearly they are not about the mm-hmm. nuclear family at all. So unless it comes to their theme parks, then I guess because every commercial is a nuclear family. But <laughs> like so, but that's as nuclear family as that as they ever go is their commercials for their theme parks. And they're also their contests. I was always in a family of five. So I was never eligible for any contest.
0: Womp, womp.
1: And so every time there was one, they're like, you in a family of four? And I'm like, ah...
0: So we're gonna have to like leave one of the siblings at home and send, and you know, send them off to years of therapy for that. Yes,
1: the joke that we always had is like, if we ever won a contest, like the person who won got to vote which kid, which of us, which of the siblings wouldn't go.
0: The family has spoken. <laughs> 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 Ooh, that's hilarious and so dark. Um, my last question is, and I feel like you've already kind of answered. It's the it. last
1: question already. Jeez.
0: Yeah, second to last. Oh my god. Um, Oh. So, <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. I want to have more questions for me, but mm. God, this guy doesn't know what he's talking No,
0: about. I asked them all. Well, this one you already kind of answered. I want to ask it anyway. So, how do you think the depiction of family is important for young people? Or how do you think the depiction of family is good or not good for young people to see in this film? And why do you think it's important to depict different families, different types of families, I should say, in all sorts of media?
1: I enjoy films that bring up family. But what's important is varying what family means.
2: Mm -hmm. Family
1: could mean the nuclear family. It can mean the Black family, the Asian family, the interracial family, the family of just friends, the family of people who hate each other but can only survive because they're they're around each other, Uh, suicide squad. But like, you can't, I think that family is important. I think that having a group of people that you can depend on and trust and believe in is something that is important for an adolescent or anyone younger or older because they are in a very scary world especially when they're going to get their hands on so much stuff now than we ever did at that age about like how countries are behaving and how the internet is also like just you know you accidentally press a button and now they know about conspiracies of how stanley kubrick is apparently behind that's <laughs> so, oh
0: way to tie that in sir uh,
1: but like because now get them while they're young apparently so like you have isis and all that sort of stuff like they have their hands on so many things that really aren't great um for somebody to get to be exposed to so having a film that that emphasizes it reminds them hey it doesn't have to be the perfect family but you can have that you can have a people you can trust that love you that care about you that want the best for you now i do always feel a little bit weird because i understand in two hours how can you get a random lady to like a random kid to want to adopt them that fast Okay, sure. In real world, that'd be real a bit weird. I, I totally get that. But um, for movie, movie magic, <laughs> just like a suit, like let's pretend it happened for over two months and they liked each other. Like um, Punky Brewster is another show that I always find it like amusing. But I have to give them credit. It took them four episodes to get to the point where we meet. Uh, sorry, if you don't know Punky Brewster, it's a it's a 1980 show about an orphan girl who um goes into an abandoned apartment uh, and the person across the way hearing a noise, goes in and finds this girl who apparently her mom just abandoned her at a supermarket. And so the whole show's premise is that this old man and this little girl, he becomes her guardian. And so it's about the shenanigans that Punky gets into. But the first four episodes, it's not like the first episode. They're like, okay, I want Punky's now living here. It took them four episodes to get through... Punky's got, we got to find her parents. Oh, we can't find her parents because she just goes through the system. Oh, she's in the system. I want I want to be her guardian. No, you can't be your guardian. Finally at the end to be like, okay, fine. He can be the guardian. Like it took four episodes to get there. Mm-hmm. And so that's why for me, I'm like, that took two hours just to get to that point. As opposed to in 15 minutes, she sees a boy and is like, oh, let's bring him to her home. That's a bit weird. I understand that concept in the real world. But for a kid, I think that it is important to remind them that like the whole world ate evil. There mm-hmm. is magic out out there in the hills. Like there is a bond that you can have, and that could be a cowboy who was the leader of the group and one of the best things until this other spaceman comes in and becomes a cool person. And then eventually, by the end, they realize that together they're a better unit together than they were separate. It could be a orphaned mouse, and a kid comes in and says, "Like I have a bond with this person," and then you have a mouse that's apparently part of your family now. Family doesn't just have to be the nuclear. It can be random stuff. A perfect show, everything's gonna be okay, which is on free form right now. That is a family and is about a guy from Australia whose father, who's American, divorced from the mom, who's Australian. So they the dad has a separate family with another wife with two girls, and he's in Australia. The dad calls them, says, like, hey, I'm gonna die of cancer. I need somebody to get like somebody of family of kin. To take care of my girls when I when I go. So he moves over and the girls could not be any more different from each other. One's this young angsty teen and the other one is um has autism while she's about to like become a woman. Like it's that is a weird combination of family members, but they are in essence a family, but it's not traditional sense. Like friends is a family, um, literal family with the Gellers, but like they're those six of them, but at that finale, you're like, they were a family that whole time. And look at them having kids now. I think that family is essential. I think, especially when you're talking about kids that are growing up, they need to feel safe. They need to feel that there is a bond um, and that they're special and can feel special, but with that responsibility of teaching kids that that is important, we have to show them representation, that it's not just the mommy and the daddy and the daughter and the son. It can also be the best friend that's been there for you the whole time or the enemy you've had for 12 years and then and then something clicks and they finally get together and they're finally friends. They can be the, in the sense of new girl, a random homeless person. That's just like the reliable thing that you have there. That's like, yeah, it's annoying, but like if he somehow disappeared, I would be worried. Showing that family isn't just that, is essential for the development because they got, this world is not wonderful. <laughs> And so no, to no. have that thing to rely on, to be reminded of once in a while, I think that's that's a sense of comfort. While they can still be entertained. Sorry, that was a TED Talk about that, but that was a
0: beautiful way to wrap things up. Because my final question is, Mr. Joe Mwamba, where can people find you on the internet?
1: They can find me at Joe Might Like TV on Twitter. I'm a lot of places, but that will probably just like just follow that and you'll learn about all the things that I'm involved. It'll
0: in. open the Pandora's box of Joe on the internet. Joe yes. might like TV.
1: Yes. And I mean, and if you want to pitch our clubhouse thing, because I would I-
0: love to pitch our clubhouse thing. We host a clubhouse about TV every Sunday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Am I doing math correctly?
1: You, you, you are correct. Yay. Beautiful. Yeah, we and I enjoy doing it. It's a lot of fun, and um it's it's just again like surprise. I came to a film podcast and talked about TV. So clearly, uh, so clearly, uh, i uh, television is my thing, um, and I don't just watch the YA stuff. I, I watch a lot. So mm-hmm. um it's great to have Lana on there and helping me out there too. So um, if you if you are so inclined to have Clubhouse, um it is up. But you can always hit me up on the Twitter. Joe might like TV.
0: Joe, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and talking about the things with me. I hope you had a fun time. It was question great. Mark.
1: Uh, no, it was it was honestly great. I enjoyed the conversation more than I liked the films. Uh, but I, but I, um, I, yeah, uh, but like no joke though, I I seriously enjoyed it and loved the opportunity to talk about this stuff with you. It was great.
0: Aww, thanks, Joe. And that is it for this episode and the first half of season two i want to thank joe for stopping by this episode as well as all my wonderful guests so far if any of you are wondering why we're doing a mid-season break don't worry it's nothing terrible is happening it's just that i have two big things coming up one of them is i'm producing a film i know really cool This late spring and summer, I'll be producing Dana Levinson's short film, Fraud, which I'm really, really, really excited to be a part of. It's an amazing script with a great cast and crew, so I am very lucky to be finally getting back at it after all of this pandemic craziness. We are currently fundraising for our COVID safety fund through the Film Collaborative, which means all donations are completely 100% tax deductible. So if you'd like to make a donation, click the link below. Or you can share that link with anyone that you think may be interested in donating. And right after that film wraps principal photography, I will be moving into my and my boyfriend's new apartment. So two really great things, but also two things that need a lot of my time and attention. And if I tried to squeeze the podcast in, it wouldn't be fair to my wonderful listeners to give them less than what they expect or really less than what they deserve. So, in the meantime, follow us on social media to be in the know about upcoming episodes and other fun movie stuff. And, as always, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, have a great summer, and, of course, keep watching movies.
2: Nobody knows how the story ends. Live the day, do what you can. This is only where it began. Nobody knows how the story ends. Nobody knows how the story ends.
0: Thanks so much for listening! Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes, and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to John F., Feriolo Fencing LLC, Mariano Dwyer, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz and our logo design is by Mark Save Thanks again. See you next time.